As I said earlier on, it's a, it's a pleasure and a blessing to be here and to have the privilege and the honour to be able to uh, share with you some thoughts from God's Word. Um, originally, when your pastor, Reverend Ian, asked if I would like to come along, I said, yes, by all means, I'm always happy to come along and chat and talk. Uh, sometimes it's difficult to shut me up. I've been given uh, reliable information about what time you expect the meeting to finish, so uh, I'll promise to try and keep to that. Um, but when he asked me if I'd like to come, I said, is there any particular topic that you would like me to address? Because sometimes it's, you, you, you know, there are things that your, your, um, uh, your regular pastor might like to talk about but feels it might come better from someone else or, or uh, it's a topic that they feel that maybe they have some more personal investment into that topic. And so he said, um, uh, yes, I'd like you to talk about um, Dare to Follow. And it was, it was an ideal topic for me because um, I believe the path that my wife and I have taken illustrates that. So please forgive me that much of what I'm going to be talking about is a reflection of our own ministry, but it's not to brag and to boast other than what the Lord is able to do through you. When Jesus was walking along the seashore, he turns to the fishermen and he says to them, I think it's in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, but it might be in one or two other places as well. And it says, come, follow me. Come, follow me. Wow, what wonderful and powerful words they are to any believer. What a beautiful vision of dropping your tools, dusting off your hands, picking up your jacket, and following his call. The freedom just to follow him, to forget everything else, all the other pressures and stresses of life in the world, just to drop it all and to follow him. To join in the adventure that was set out for the apostles. To be part of that, to do as they did. To live the life as they experienced it. To live it for yourself and experience the same. To live a life of such faith and challenge. Come follow me. To know and to receive that all the resources that the Lord has, he's going to give to you to accomplish your part in the Great Commission. Now, to me, that was a life that was worth living. That is the purpose of our lives and being here on this planet. Now, I was brought up a Roman Catholic. I lived most of my childhood in Norwich and a little bit of my childhood in, uh, in Lincolnshire as well. So it was a, I was a country boy through and through. And um, I had a... I don't know if you remember them, those of you that are a little bit older, the little ladybird books... And I had a ladybird book, I can't remember what its title was called, but it was about the story of Samuel and Eli. And I loved the idea, because there was a painting or a picture of the little boy, Samuel, 
who looked a little bit like me in this Ladybird book. He'd got thick brown curly hair. Uh, well, I used to have thick brown curly hair. And um, I just loved the idea that God was speaking directly to this little boy. And I, I wanted that for myself, that God would talk to me directly. And that's as far as it went. I didn't think any more of that until I became an adult and realized that there was, there was a link there somehow. And I loved the idea that the little boy would hear God's voice and speak to him directly. Now, when I was about 11, we stopped going to church. My mum and dad had become disillusioned with the church. My dad had been brought up a Methodist, but became a, a Catholic to, to marry my mother. I was quite pleased that we'd stopped going to church because my mother had had plans that I was going to become an altar boy. And that was not my ideal of childhood. I did not want to be up the front serving the, the sacraments. I, didn't, I, I was always terrified I'd get it in the wrong order, and I, I just didn't like the idea of being up front. It was, it was something that terrified me. I wanted to be a Boy Scout. But my dad moved his work, and so we moved to Norwich from Lincolnshire to Norwich. Thankfully, I never became an altar boy. But I also never became a Boy Scout either because the opportunity didn't arise because I was afraid that if I asked my mum and dad if I could become a Boy Scout, it might make them start thinking again about me becoming an altar boy. So I kept quiet about it and never became the Boy Scout or the altar boy. But one of the things that we always did, even though we'd stopped going to church, we always went to church at midnight mass. Every, every uh, Christmas Eve, we'd go along to midnight mass. And that was, that was, the, um, that was the basis of our, of our church attendance from the age of 11 onwards until, until I left home at about 18 or 19 and went to live in London. And when I was leaving home, my mother said, Mike... I want, well, she didn't say Mike, she said Michael. That's my mother's name for me, Michael, the, the formal. And she said, Michael, I want to have a word with you. I want you to promise me something. And I thought, oh, no. I thought she was going to ask me, you know, to be careful with women or something like that. And I thought, oh, no, she's going to ask me to do something that I didn't want to do. And to my relief, she said, I want you to always, now that you've left home, always promise me that you will go to Midnight Mass at Christmas. Because that was the absolute minimum to recognize that God in heaven has a claim upon you. And I thought that was a phenomenal statement now that I think back to it. Because when I lived in London, I met a young lady and she happened to go to the Salvation Army. And I didn't know she belonged to the Salvation Army, and I'd, um, uh, I'd met her, and we were at a disco. Uh, it was my, uh, during the, the family network, I had been asked, uh, my cousin had been asked to look after me, because he was the London boy, and I was the country boy, so he was, he was uh, asked to look after me. And he was a, a, a director of an amateur dramatic theatre, which happened to be in an old converted church in, in Wandsworth. And while I was there, one of the actresses, an amateur dramatic actress, belonged to the Salvation Army. And after a, uh, a play had finished, there'd always be an aftercast party. And I met this young lady, and she, um, I, I quite fancied her. I was a young man interested only in one thing, and I was dancing with her. And um, 
it became obvious what I was interested in, and she said to me, I belong to the Salvation Army. Well, that was like throwing a bucket of cold water over you, because you, you, know, you knew you wouldn't get anywhere in that sense with somebody from the Salvation Army. And uh, she saw the look on my face, and she said, do you want to go and sit down? Was it a shot? <laughs> anyway, cutting the story short, this was in the October period, and she said, would you like to come along, as we were beginning to get to know each other, would you like to come along to the, the Salvation Army carol service? Carol service, midnight mass, it's the same thing. And I thought I could kill two birds with one stone and um, uh, chase the girl, but also um, uh, keep my mother happy. By that Easter, I got saved. And some of the songs we've been singing brought that back to, to my memory, was that when I was going to this tiny little South London church, Salvation Army Corps, we call them a corps rather than a church, but it's the same thing. And it was, had about 50 or 60 people in the congregation, and they all came off the inner city London housing estates. Their expectation and, and, and thought of life was completely different to what I had grown up with in the fields in Norwich in Lincolnshire. And as I got to know them and I was watching them, and they were all dressed in this, um, I ne nearly said medieval, but it, it's not medieval, it was Victorian, Victorian garb, you know, the bonnets with the big bows on the side, and the stiff collars on their neck, and I thought, oh my goodness, what have I got myself involved in? But as I watched them, and it was a funny mixed group, and I recognised that they had something that I didn't have. They had a certainty about life. They had a certainty about the purpose of their life. They knew and had a confidence without being bragging or anything, but there was something they had got that I hadn't got. And I wanted what they had got. And as I began to mix with them, I began to understand what they had got. They had got Jesus. It was as simple as that. They had got Jesus in their life. I knew about Jesus, but I did not know Jesus. He was not my personal friend and saviour, as we say. And I bought into it, hook, line, and sinker, that when he said, come follow me, I put down my paintbrushes, dusted my hands off, picked up my jacket, and said, yes, this is for me. And the frightening part of it was not just about letting go of everything that you once believed in and taking on something new, taking on the teachings of Jesus in a sense that it had to be something real. It wasn't just platitudes anymore. This had to be real. And that as that happened, there's a fear that is involved in that to let go of something that you've known and relied upon, the knowledge that you've had, and taking on the new life and what that means, because that is an unknown, and that's where the fear comes in. But then there was another fear on top of that, because my calling to become a born-again Christian, if you want to use those terms, that spiritual awakening that I had, he was also calling me to become a leader amongst these weirdos in the funny hats and the tall, tall collars. They wanted me, he wanted me to be a leader amongst them, and I knew nothing. But that's what he said to me. And I thought, well, if, if this is what is happening inside me and I can feel this, then I must obey. I must follow what he has called me to do. Even though from an intellectual position, 
There was no, absolutely no reason why I should even consider myself to want to lead these people. So that took a courage as well. Not only to say yes to the Lord, to allow him to come into my life, but also to say yes to the Lord with what he was calling me to do and to say, yes, I will be a leader. A little bit like Moses. He didn't want to be a leader, but he had to do as he was told. And so I joined the Salvation Army and became a spiritual leader. Those wonderful words of Jesus, come follow me. I bought into it 100%. Well, I believed it's 100%. As you grow in the faith, you believe, you recognize that it's never 100%. It might be 100% at the time, but the Lord reveals other things to you. I remember being absolutely astonished at the time that he wanted me to become part of the army and to lead it. And what he was asking me to be. The words that we read from the Bible reading... Okay, it was Moses was being told to go into the land, um, the promised land, not to be afraid, not to be terrified, because it was going to be, uh, I mean, from the, West, from the, uh, the modern day mind, the idea of taking over somebody's country and, and exterminating those that were already in it, you, you know, is, is not our way of thinking anymore. But he was being told, and he was telling his people, do not be afraid, do not be terrified. And that's the same the same words that we, we need to take on board today for our faith is to dare to follow. Do not be afraid. Do not be terrified. Now, there are some things that you have to face that perhaps don't terrify us, but they do make us afraid. And I'll come back to that again in a, mo in a moment. I can say that the ministry I have shared with my wife over the last 40 years we have faced an incredible adventure, and I'll touch on some of that in a moment. Some incredible trials and incredible challenges. And we took God's promise that he would go before us, and he would also walk with us, and that he would empower us, and that he would protect us. And until you go out on the limb, those words mean nothing to you. They're, again, they're just platitudes. But if you go out on the limb, then you find them real. They're not going to be real for you if you're sitting in a comfortable position, in a comfortable life, in a comfortable way of ministry. Then you don't need, you don't need courage. You, you don't need protection. Well, you do because you're, you're not, you know, the devil's got you really because you're not actually achieving anything for the kingdom. Or if you are, it's, it's on very low levels. All that it took for us to have this adventure was for us to have faith, and to have courage and to have love. At one of our early churches that we were sent to once we had become ordained as Salvation Army officers, we went to Mansfield up in Nottinghamshire and we were asked the local corps when we got there, we said, what's the worst place in town? Because we sussed out what the ministry was and what level they were at. And it was, it was typical of what, what a lot of churches do. There was a, an elderly congregation, a future handful of children coming in, and they had a lunch club for, for people and, you know, a few things like that. Um, but there was nothing really that was challenging the devil. And so we said, where is the worst place in town? And they said, there's a social housing estate on the edge of the town. 
And what the churches used to do, they would take their minibus into the town, pick the people up, and then bring them to their churches. And that wasn't really achieving very much. It was better than nothing, but it wasn't achieving very much. And we said, that's where we've got to be. So we opened a, we took over the community centre in this, it was one of the top ten worst estates in the country at the time. All the fathers were in prison and in and out of them. The teenagers were getting um, ASBOs and social behaviour um, orders and all, all, things like that. Uh, and the women were just trying to hold on to their sanity, the mums and that. It was a, a crazy estate. And we took over this, um, this community centre and we did something for the kids. But we, couldn't, we didn't have enough staff because this is, this is one of the things. The older members of the church were too afraid to do anything. So it was the youngsters from the church, it was our own teenagers, were the only ones that would support my wife and I as we went onto this housing estate. And um, every week, we would be looking after kids from the age of about five up to about 12, if that was the age group. The teenagers of the, um, of the area were feral. And they would attack the centre every week. They'd come with bats and bricks and pieces of wood and hammers and they'd be smashing on the doors, smashing on the window, smashing on the roof. Sometimes it was so dangerous we would have to send the children home. We knew the children were okay because it was their brothers and sisters outside that were bashing. But we knew they were angry at us because we didn't have enough staff to do a second programme for the teenagers. And one day I was isolated. All the staff had gone because they were taking the kids home to make sure they got home safe. And I was on my own and six of these youths came in with bats and um, sticks and iron bars. And I thought, oh my goodness, um, I'm going to get hurt here. But we got through it. The Lord protects. And that estate, we became the pastors of that estate. And we couldn't get them to church but we would go and visit them, and we became their pastors. We would visit them, and we, would, we got them to... Um, these were all... A lot of them had, uh, were miners, so we were able to get coal from other miners to go and give to them to help them heat their homes. We would get from their allotments food to go to the luncheon club and things like that. So what had been a terrible estate was beginning to not just think of itself, but um, look after others. We'd go to the pubs on a Friday night, not an awful lot different to what the street pastors do here. But we would go into the pubs every Friday night, and, or the working men's clubs when you go further up north. And um, that's quite a brutal environment because we would get jeered, we'd get teased, we'd get sexually abused. Not just my wife would be touched, I would be touched. And it was all to see what sort of reaction they'd get from us. And sometimes there would be aggression as well. And we used to hate going to the pubs. The fear would start round about Wednesday. And by Friday, when we'd go into the pubs, we would have a time of prayer. And it always seemed like the prayer didn't make much difference because we were still terrified when we were going to go and go into the pub. But as soon as we touched the door handle of the pub, as soon as we pushed the door open to step in, believe me, the peace of God just ascended upon us. And we would have a wonderful time. And again, we became their pastors. We would pray with them. We would visit them in hospital. We would get to know them, and they would get to know us. They invited us down the coal mines. My wife came with me. And they didn't take us on the tourist route. They took us right to the face 
of where they were cutting coal. And you got the bacon slicer, as they called it. It was going backwards and forwards, slicing off six inches of coal each time it went. And then the chocks, you would be on your hands and knees, and it was about a metre tall. And you go on your hands and knees, and the chocks would move forward. So as they sliced off six inches of coal, the chocks would move forward. And then the ceiling behind you would collapse. So the only thing that was keeping you safe were the chocks. And the chocks are only about that, you know, you've only got that much space in width and that much space in height. It was a dangerous place to be. It was terrifying. And what was Joseph, oh, not Joseph, Moses was saying, do not be afraid, do not be courageous. By, and by understanding how the miners lived and worked, you were able to have a ministry. So the Lord used that courage that you had got, that he had given to you in the first place, to be able to open the hearts of people. And then something happened. Jesus called again. He said, come and follow me. And this time it was to go into Eastern Europe. We, my wife and I, had had a, um, what do you call it? We had an awareness, probably by the Holy Spirit, that things were changing the world. Lech Walesa was doing his thing. Reagan and Gorbachev were doing their thing. And even in China, the Gang of Four were doing their thing. And, and things were changing in the world. And we said to the army leadership, we would like to work abroad. And they said, where? And we said, well, we have a feeling for Eastern Europe. We'd done a, an aid program for Romania. And we thought, this is where the Lord's calling us to be. And so we decided to go to what was then called um, Czechoslovakia. You think when you're a man of God or a woman of God that you are following the Lord and you rely upon him. But until you're put out into something where you are incredibly vulnerable, you realize how much you do not rely upon him for. So our reliance upon the Lord multiplied a hundredfold because we were isolated, we were on our own, and we had to learn the language, we had to learn how to deal with the people, we had to learn how to effectively preach and effectively reach out to people. People who many of them had never even heard of God and never even understood the concept of God because they'd grown up under a regime where they, they were not exposed to that type of teaching. We had been asked by President Havel, not us personally, but the Salvation Army had been asked by President Havel to go to Czechoslovakia to open up some hostels. Now, my training at the training college that we have over in um, Denmark Hill, my training for social work was a week of peeling potatoes in a hostel and uh, uh, another week in an old people's home where we learned how to shave old men. <laughs> and that was it. And there we were in the heart of Europe, in the heart of Eastern Europe, opening a hostel for homeless people. The police chief in the town captain, whatever his name was, Vladimir, he had been ordered by um, the Home Office, or whatever you call it in, in the Czech Republic, to, um, in Czechoslovakia, to give us um, support. And I went to meet him, and he got a big steel cabinet, and he took out a bunch of keys, opened up the steel cabinet behind his desk, and opened the doors. And it was filled with guns, pistols, rifles, truncheons, um, spray mace, handcuffs, and he said, take anything that you want. He said, because the prisons are going to be emptied. President Havel had had an amnesty. The prisons were emptied, and the people had nowhere to live because a lot of their place has been bulldozed um, because they've been in prison for, for so many years. 
And so many of those homeless people were going to be homeless, and that was our task. And he said, they're going to be dangerous. And I said to him, if I need any of those items, I'm doing my job wrong. He said, but they're dangerous. I said, no, if you treat people with respect, generally speaking, you get respect back. And that was part of what Havel had had in mind, was that not just about how to organize a, um, um, a, a hostel, because under, under communism, there was no such thing as homelessness, because if that's antisocial behavior. If you had antisocial behavior, if you're a drug addict, or you were an alcoholic, you were put in prison. So there was no such thing as homelessness. And so suddenly there was homelessness. So it was about how do you administer support to these people, but how do you do it in a humane way? How do you do it in a way that gives people dignity? And that's, that's what we were there for. So here we were, completely green and wet behind the ears about how to do this, but the Lord just told us it was common sense. Treat them with love and treat them with respect. And we changed, we literally changed the country in the way that they dealt with social problems and how you give respect to people. And then the story goes on. We went to, we were also sent to Moscow and we were responsible for um, social care and youth activities in Russia, in Ukraine, in Moldova, in Romania and in Georgia. Do not be afraid to go out into all of those situations. In Moscow, we ran a, a day center project for homeless children who lived in the gangs in the train stations. And we would provide care for them. Every two weeks, our project, the police would arrive in two or three minibuses. They'd surround the building with their Kalashnikovs standing on guard and then they'd burst in and arrest half of the children and take them with them because they had escaped from children's homes. And in those children's homes, the staff were being paid to groom the children for the gangs for sex and for um, um, being used in those sort of ways and for criminal activity. Two or three days later, most of those children had escaped from wherever the police had taken them and they'd come back again. And the police, it was easier for the police to come to our centre than it was to go to, um, go to the, uh, the train stations and try and find them hiding under the, uh, the, play, uh, the platforms in the, in the train station and things like that. Do not be afraid. We'd have to face down the police captain who was standing there with his hand on his pistol and challenging him, why do you do this? And there was always a, a, an excuse that they said, we're looking for drugs. Uh, uh, yeah, there were drugs. The kids had drugs on them, some of them anyway. Quite a frightening moment, those times, when they would surround us. And then we would move on. We got involved in what you were talking about, the, um, the dreadful disasters going on in Syria and Turkey. I was part of the Salvation Army International um, Emergency Department because I'd got certain expertise in feeding large numbers of people, which was like four or five hundred, but uh, we were asked to go and uh, run refugee camps in Albania during the Kosovo-Albania War and uh, Yugoslavia. And then when we had the, um, the tsunami, we were sent to India and the Andaman Islands to help um, provide support and care. These are frightening situations to be in. Some of the NGOs, when they were in Albania, some of the uh, 
uh, some of the volunteers would be captured by the, uh, what do you call them, the bandits, and would be executed if they didn't cooperate. And you were driving through bandit country in the mountains when, you were, when we were providing a way station, providing um, water and refreshments to refugees returning home. And they would be patrolling, and the military would be patrolling as well, so you were caught in the middle. Do not be afraid. When you're called, come follow me. How much do we put ourselves out there to be used? A lot of people say, I will do anything for anybody. Yet you sit at home. You have to be out there to really make the difference. Because generally speaking, most people who know, need help do not come to you. You have to go to them. You have to find them. You have to go. It's, it was wonderful to hear the, what is it, the BMS or something? The, the, you, you know, they are people going in to the fray. They're the people going in. And you go into a situation like that, and you don't know what resources are going to be available. Yes, you might have a few dollars in the bank that you can pay for something, but you've got to go and deal with the situation there on the ground in front of you. How do you link in? How do you fit in? How do you, who do you talk to? Who do you get, you, you know, so you've got to find your way through it. You've got to be flexible of mind. But that's the same with evangelism. You've got to be flexible of mind and flexible of attitude so that you can get close to people. The point that I say about all of these places, the last place we were sent to before we came wonderfully to Romford out of all of these other places, we were sent to Belgium. And we represented the Salvation Army at the European Union. But we also ran the Salvation Army in Belgium as well. And we were there during the crisis of the, uh, the refugee crisis. So we were opening up new refugee centres, coping with the thousands that were coming across. But we also have to have the courage to speak with the EU powers that be, the European leaders, the parliaments and the, uh, they don't call them ministries, they call them director generals, the different departments. And you've got to face them down with their, uh, some of the, the baloney that they talk about how they're helping when they're not really helping, they're looking for excuses not to help. And you've got to challenge that. That takes courage. That takes Oh, you know, you can't have fear in that. You've got to go in and do. And the Lord empowers you to do that. Just as he empowers you to have the courage to put your arm around a stranger, whether it's the homeless person in the street here in Romford or whether it's a person that comes to the door, it takes a courage to put your arm around someone because they can reject it. And it hurts you when, it, when it's rejected. Or it can be that you're wanting to share your faith with somebody. Maybe it's at the bus stop. Maybe you just have this feeling that you need to speak to this person. And there's a fear there because you're a fear of being humiliated. There is also a fear that your, your approach is wrong because some of the language we use in the church, and I'm a believer, turns me cold. And I think you've got to find the right way of being able to approach to people. It takes courage to speak to someone. It takes courage to use your spiritual gifts. Because when you start first using them, you're afraid that it's not going to work, or you're afraid of humiliating yourself, or being judged by others. 
The devil has its wonderful ways of being able to stop us from doing what the Lord wants us to do. It takes faith, as I said at the beginning, to accept, to dare to follow, to dare to allow the Lord into your life and take control of that life. Not without you, not like you're an automaton, but in the, in the sense of he's going to be telling you things and you've got to be quick and swift to answer and to follow, or you dim the light. It does take courage to follow, but above all, it has to be love. You love your children. You will do anything for your children. If they're in trouble, you will do anything to help them out of that trouble. You'll do anything to protect them. And that has to be the way as the church that we have to do anything to rescue people from their sin or to rescue people from the situation in which they find. To be the hands. I think it was in a prayer we were talking about hearing and speaking and doing having the courage to do that. Timid Christianity is what holds the church back. Too many of us do the soft options. Yes, we do need Sunday school teachers. Yes, we do need people working in the bar. Yes, or at the cafe. We do need people to do the soft things. But we also need people to do the hard things. It's like the difference, to use a footballing illustration, the difference of playing in a non-league club and playing at the top in the Champions League. There's an element of that in the church. You've got those that are doing the soft jobs, and for them, that might be their widow's might. That might be all that they can actually do. But for a bunch of others of us who have got other resources, and perhaps we're so busy doing our normal day living, having our professions and having our... Uh, uh, our holidays and having our houses and our cars that some of you should be giving that up because the Lord is calling you to do something more and therefore you've got to have courage to let go of what you know so that you can do what he wants you to be doing building his church but that takes courage to leave go of everything that you know and build your, your confidence on your pension, your savings your house that you want to live to your children and things of that nature. How important is all of that? When we decided to become part of the Salvation Army, we let go of all of that. That's no longer our concern. Our church looks after us, yes. So to that point, we don't have to think about it. But it's a very standard, basic living. It's not, not luxurious in any sense or form. But it's so that you can concentrate on the following. The following of the Lord, daring to follow. I realise I'm coming to the end now. Nike have a slogan. You walk past JD Sports or Sports Direct and the slogan's in the window. And it says, just do it. So often I've been to seminars and I've been to training weekends and I've been to evangelical conferences where they are asking the Lord and the Holy Spirit to come down and empower them and, and to go before them and all of that sort of stuff. When all you need to do is go out and do it. Yes, you do have to have those prayers. Of course you do. And, you, you know, there used to be an old saying, um, Christians, they say their prayers at night, they put their armour on and then they go to sleep. You, you, you know, that you, you put the armour on so you can actually go out and fight, that you can be the real thing. We were singing and praying about change the world. 
And that, that's, you, you know, I've experienced changing the world because we put ourselves out there. Because it wasn't us in our own strength, we were terrified. In the Lord's strength, we found courage. And it says this in Ezekiel, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And that's not just the Ten Commandments. That is about listening to what the Lord is saying to you and follow my leading. And he goes on to say in John chapter 15, verse 8, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, I don't know what your fruit is like. Do you have an empty basket with one or two rotten pears in it? Or do you have an abundance of fruit? Come, follow me, it says in Matthew chapter, 19, uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 19. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. Are you going to fish in the gentle waters? Or you are, are you going to ask, where is the worst place? That's where I need to be. And I finish with this quote. It's taken from a lady called Gemma Simmons, who writes in... Um, like a daily devotional book and she writes this Christ is hidden in all the needs that we see around us in poverty and human need he comes to heal the sick in body, mind and soul he is there within them and within us bringing the us all together completing his purpose giving us to each other in love. I think those are wonderful words of summing up that we need each other. We need those who are suffering and they need us. And above all, the Lord needs us to be following him. So the challenge is dare to follow, whether that's putting your arm around someone, whether it's sharing your faith with someone, or whether it's getting off your bottoms and doing something that is outside of your normal comfort zone. I would ask you to bow our heads because I'd like to um, con uh, conclude with a prayer before I hand over to Vicky. Heavenly Father, create in me a heart that is full of love for people. Create in me a heart that is courageous and willing to do all that is necessary to build your kingdom. Lord, forgive me when I take the easy and soft option because it is more comfortable and less costly. Forgive me, but also give me wisdom, Lord, to help to keep a balance between my calling and my service and my family life, not to sacrifice my children, but equally not to use them as an excuse for not following your will. Lord, may my life be lived as a sacrament of love that I may dare to follow you. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.